North Roanoke Baptist Church, we continue in our series through the Minor Prophets, the book of the Twelve, really one book that God has given to us in twelve parts, and we are in the eleventh part this morning. We are in Zechariah, and as much as I would like to preach the entire book of Zechariah to you this morning, it's, it's simply not feasible to do it justice in the time that we have this morning. And so we'll be in chapters 3 and 4, and I'll try to situate them in a context as best I can in just a moment. Zechariah chapter 3 and 4, we'll read the third chapter, and then for the second point of the sermon, I'll simply summarize the fourth chapter. Having said that, why don't we read the text of Scripture together, Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel meaning the angel of the Lord. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by and the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and also have charge of my courts, and I will grant you free access among these who are standing here. Verse 8. Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed, they are men who are a symbol, for behold, I am going to bring in my servant the branch. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. The reading the Word of God. Would you pray with me? Our Father in Heaven, Your name is holy. You dwell in unapproachable light. And yet, we read in Zechariah that somehow, some way, You have qualified us to approach You and to be included in your great work. Help us, Holy Spirit of God, to comprehend what you have written to us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Zechariah prophesies at the same time as Haggai, but he prophesies longer than Haggai. Haggai goes in 520 and preaches four sermons, and he's done. Zechariah continues likely until... Uh, 480 or thereabouts, but both of them are committed to encouraging the people of God 
who had been in exile in Babylon to rebuild the temple, the second temple there in Jerusalem. I've titled this sermon, Unqualified and Incapable with a Strikethrough. I love the strikethrough. People should use it more often. Because, because on our own, we are unqualified and incapable. We are unqualified to stand before God and we're incapable of doing anything worthwhile for the sake of God and His kingdom in the upbuilding of His temple. But Christ has come and He has qualified us and the Spirit gives us capacity that is not our own. There's the sermon in a sentence. Zechariah, his name means the Lord remembers. And he shows us that God remembers his covenant and his people through a son. Zechariah contains more messianic prophecies, more messianic prophecies than any other prophetic book in the Old Testament with the exception of Isaiah. We are introduced to God's servant, the shepherd who's rejected by his people for 30 pieces of silver, the king and the pierced one. The book of Zechariah shows us that the fulfillment of the Messianic promises to David will surely come, but they will only come when, a, when Israel completely obeys God's will. Zechariah 6.15 confirms that for us. Those who are far off will come and build in the temple of the Lord. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. Do you hear the problem in this verse? Well, who has completely obeyed the Lord their God? When has that ever happened? When has North Roanoke, even for one day, completely obeyed the will of the Lord their God? When did Israel or Jerusalem or Judah completely obey the will of the Lord their God? This blessing that God purposes to bring, this deliverance from captivity and the upbuilding of the temple is always conditioned upon complete obedience. The blessings and the curses of Deuteronomy are being invoked here. If you don't obey completely, then the curses of God are due and what? Are we to do but to shut it down and go home and go have lunch? There's nothing else we can do. Or so it would seem. John Salhammer writes, Because Israel and Jerusalem in Zechariah's day do not come close to meeting this standard of perfection, Zechariah demonstrates on the one hand that their return from captivity is something, something they are powerless to produce. There's nothing they can do about it. On the other hand, in a series of eight symbolic night visions, and we will consider the fourth and fifth vision in chapter 3 and 4, he shows us that the captivity of God's people, their enslavement not only to the Babylonians, but more importantly to sin and death, their enslavement is about to be over because the temple is indeed about to be rebuilt. You see, Zechariah is written as a book of hope and encouragement for the struggling Jewish returnees, that their work of building would come to fruition. And the major theme of the entire work is this, the kingdom of God will triumph over all other kingdoms of the earth. And yet it will not happen until God's people completely obey. Which raises this question, how is it that the work of the Lord will proceed only when there is complete obedience and yet God's people have fallen and still fall short of His glory. You say, Daniel, I, I understand that God's standard is, is perfection, that, it, that we have the perfections of the Father, that we have complete righteousness, that we always follow God perfectly, but I don't do that. How is it that we answer this 
conundrum, this question, and the answer is in Zechariah chapter 3 and chapter 4. To build God's temple, to be the people of God who have the presence of God, both corporately and individually as we go into our marriages and our families and raise our kids and do all the things that we struggle with week in and week out, God says His presence is available, that we can extend and show the implications of His presence in every area of life if we get these two things. First, we must be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. You'll never be perfect as the Father is perfect without the righteousness that Christ delights to give. And secondly, we must be empowered by the Holy Spirit. We must be empowered by the Holy Spirit. First, to build God's temple, to, to take what's in here out there, to apply it in our work life and in our home life and in our in-between life, we must be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Did you notice in verse 1 that while Joshua is standing before the angel of the Lord, that Satan is standing by Joshua's right hand, ready to accuse him. The right hand in the Old Testament is the place of accusation. Make no mistake about it, when you get serious about the gospel, when you get serious about serving in Jesus' name, when you get serious about being the husband that God's calling you to be, when you get serious about being the wife that God's calling you to be, when you get serious about being the student that God is calling you to be, when you get serious about being the churchman or the churchwoman or the laborer or the servant or actually serving our preschool families by writing on your connect card, God is calling me to serve in the nursery to help young families get what I've already gotten. And you put that in the offering plate or give it to an usher. When you start to take your stand in the presence of God for the proclamation of the gospel and the upbuilding of the temple, Satan will come and take his stand at your right hand. He will come and stand to accuse you. He will find the places of accusation in your life and argue that you are disqualified to be part of the glorious work of helping others enjoy the glory and the presence and the favor of God. He delights, once you get in, he delights to mess up your life by standing there in the place of accusation for the rest of your life. Who is Joshua to stand in the presence of God on behalf of others? He's just a sinner. Who are we to stand in the presence of God on behalf of our neighbors and the nations who don't yet know Christ? How is it that we can enter into God's presence, much less pretend that God wants to use us to extend his presence to the ends of the earth? Who are you, Daniel Palmer? Who are you, North Roanoke Baptist Church? Can you hear the accusations of the great accuser standing at your right hand? And though Satan is a liar, and the father of lies if we stop at verse 1 we must acknowledge that Satan is telling the truth in this instance you see unless God does something we're clothed in filth verses 3 and 4 our garments are indeed filthy we have not offered God our complete obedience and our garments have been soiled the word filthy is the strongest expression in the Hebrew language for the filth of the most vile and loathsome character when I used to work at Food Lion way back in the day on summer breaks I'd come in from college and, and they always said it's because you're such a good employee you know that dumpster out back well it's been emptied, and I know it's 100 degrees outside, literally 100 degrees outside, 
But they've just emptied the dumpster. And what we do when they empty the dumpster is we find our best and brightest. And we send them down into the dumpster with Clorox and soap and hoses. And we just make you scrub and get it all off of there. Oh, really? You know, Kroger's hiring. Um, <laughs> but, but I went in. And I actually... I was physically impacted by this experience. I mean, it was, it was that bad. It, it, was, it was horrible. And it took all day, and it was incredibly hot. And, and I still can't believe I did it, actually, when I think back on it. But it was, it was disgusting. And when I finished that job, you did not want to be in my presence. You would have been entirely justified to say, get away from me and don't come back until you figure out how to get that smell out of your hair and your nostrils and you burn your clothes and perhaps even, you know, exfoliate two layers deep. Do something to get that stuff away from me and in a much more profound way. The way I was soiled on my physical garments. We have all been so soiled spiritually, soiled by lives that have fallen short of the glory of God. And Satan stands ready to derail you in your pursuit of Christ and the upbuilding of his temple by reminding you that apart from Christ, you are nasty, you are vile, you are disgusting. And as Jeremiah says, your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Some of you are living your Christian lives trapped in the cycle of satanic accusation. You even pile on and help Satan out. Well, I had an abortion in my past. God could never forgive me. I know my past. I know what I did way back when. I even have pictures of it. It's, it's all around. People talk about me behind my back and they know what I did and I keep on punishing myself and limiting what God can do with me now because I really don't understand just how much filth Christ put on himself and nailed to the cross in giving me his righteousness. Are there consequences for your past? Yes, there are consequences for your past. There are certain things that if you've done in your past, then we won't let you do certain things in the church anymore. For example, if someone walks in and has been a child predator in their past, we're not going to put them in our nursery. There's consequences to that sin. But even a child predator can be rescued by the grace of Christ, can be cleaned up and presented as spotless before the throne of God, qualified to do something in the kingdom of God. But why? Because though there are consequences this side of heaven, there are there is not condemnation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 8:1 there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And I don't care where you are or what you've done. If you have truly trusted in Christ, if you've truly yielded your life to him, and if you are robed in the robes that Christ has worn for you, if you have been cleansed by the blood-soaked body of Christ, then you have been cleansed indeed. Even this week, as you sin and you try to condemn yourself, you take it to Christ in confession and you find that you are clean. When Satan comes to accuse you, Yahweh, verse 2, comes to rebuke him. Twice in verse 2. God does not rebuke Satan, by the way, because of who you are. God doesn't rebuke Satan because of the good things that you've done since he changed your life. Notice why God rebukes Satan. Twice. Because 
He has chosen us. Indeed, the Lord has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a brand or a stick plucked from the fire? Yes, we deserved the judgment of God, and yet Christ came. And God said, all who by faith come to me through Christ, they have been chosen to be my people. And praise God, Christ takes the sin and the guilt and the iniquity of those who run to Jesus, and he wraps them in the righteousness of God. This angel of the Lord, who we find Joseph, excuse me, Joshua, serving. We, we have enough evidence in the Old Testament to conclude that this angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity. The angel of the Lord is recognized in Scripture as deity. He's referred to as God and the Lord, while at other times we see the angel of the Lord speaking to Yahweh. So he is the Lord, but he's distinct from the Lord. And so we have uh, the beginnings of Trinitarianism in chapter 3 of Zechariah. And then we have the Holy Spirit in chapter 4. So even the Old Testament has the Trinity, which is why on Wednesday at 6.30, I'm going to be lecturing on the Trinity. If you've ever had questions about the Trinity and why the Trinity is important and why if your God is not the triune God, you're not saved, Wednesday night, 6.30, would be a helpful time to come. An hour of lecture on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The angel of the Lord no longer appears in the Bible after the arrival of Christ. Why? Because the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. The angel of the Lord can forgive sins. And who can forgive sins but God alone? And this act of forgiveness is accomplished by the angel of the Lord, God himself. Salvation is always a work of God. And how is it that God saves us? We see it in verses 4 and 5. He removes our filthy garments. He doesn't just paper over them. Right? He doesn't just take Daniel out of the dumpster and say, well, go put on a suit and you'll be okay. No, the, the stench would still be there. The foulness would still be there. Trust me, you would not have sat down and had a meal with me no matter how good my suit and tie looked if I had not taken a really, really long shower and debated shaving my head. He removes our filthy garments. But he doesn't stop there. You see... Our filth demands a verdict. It's iniquity. It is sin that makes us guilty before a holy God. And he takes our guilt. He removes it. Takes it on his own flesh so that he can throw it as far away as east is from west. And then in verse 5, he doesn't leave us without any robes. But he dresses us with festal robes for priestly service. And clothes us with the righteousness of God. And he puts a turban on our head. And the priestly turban in the tabernacle and in the temple had a, 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 a grommet on it that was inscribed with the words holy to the Lord. He takes what was nasty and vile and he makes it holy to the Lord. And though Joshua will fail to live up to verse 7. Did you notice in verse 7? It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and perform my service, then you will govern my house and have charge over my courts and will grant you free access among those who are standing here. Though this Joshua in the text surely falls short of God's standard. Verse 8 tells us that the point is he's symbolic of a greater Joshua yet to come. Whose name is Jesus. Whose name is salvation. Who is qualified to go wherever God goes because he is God. And he gives his life for us. Joshua verse 8 according to the NIV which renders this very well. Is a symbol of the things to come. He 
points us to the incarnation of God the Son, who is, did you see this in verse 8? He's brought in by Yahweh. Did you see those words, brought in? Those are great words. Have you ever needed a substitute? Has anybody in here ever played sports? I don't know how to play sports other than one level. Flat out crazy. But what happens, particularly now because I'm not in the shape I was when I was 18, I can go for about two and a half minutes and then I need a sub and some oxygen, right? Aren't you glad that Yahweh didn't just give you an average Joe substitute? But when you were sucking air and out of gas and came to the end of your rope and realized that you were worthless, that God sent in his servant. Do you see that in verse 8? I will send in my servant. I will send in my servant the branch. You see, this servant is Isaiah's suffering servant, the one who will perfectly perform the will of the Father and suffer as he bears the weight of our sin in his own body. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify many as he will bear their iniquities. Isaiah 53. And this servant will be the branch. Which branch? The branch that is the branch of the high king of the King David and the branch of the high priest. The high priest and the Davidic king who builds the temple and rules God's people as we saw in verse 7. In Jeremiah 23, 5, the prophet says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up David a righteous branch and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. The king is coming. The root of Jesse is coming. The offspring of David is coming. And he will wrap you with the righteousness of God. And then later in Zechariah 6.15, the prophet says of the high priest, Behold, a man whose name is Branch. Listen to what he will do. He will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. How is it that Christ the high priest has branched out from where he is, and he's building the temple of the Lord? We find it over in 2 Peter. He has made us a kingdom of priests. Did you know that God makes everyone when he saves them into a priest? He abolishes the priestly class on the one level because Christ is the high priest, but on the other hand, he makes us all priests. He makes us all a part of the work of extending his presence to the ends of the earth, and he is now building his temple through his church, this kingdom of priests, going out and daring to change the valley and reach the world in Jesus' name. But he's not just the servant, and he's not just the branch in verse 9. He's the stone. He's the stone with seven eyes, symbolizing his infinite and divine knowledge and wisdom. D does Zechariah mean that Jesus is the final stone brought forth as the capstone in the temple, like he says in verse 7 of chapter 4? Or, or does he mean that Jesus is the cornerstone? The, the foundation upon which everything rests. Isaiah says, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in him will not be disturbed. Praise God, no one can disturb those who have placed their faith in the cornerstone. Or, does, does Zechariah mean the ornamental grommet 
that holds the turban on our head firmly placed, inscribed with the words, Holy to the Lord? Or does he mean the rock stricken with a rod from which there flows living water? Yes. Yes, he does. That and more. He means Christ the rock, the solid rock upon which you can build your life because he takes the filth of your life and gives you his righteousness. We see that in verse 9. In one day, verse 9 tells us, the iniquity of the entire land, everyone who belongs to the, to the domain of God, all of that iniquity in one day is erased at Calvary's cross. Prophetically, this one day is the once for all deliverance provided at Calvary and completely realized in our experience at the second advent of our Messiah, according to Barker. And from this day to the day that he comes, look what we do in verse 10. We invite our neighbor to sit in the shade of God's grace as we build in the temple of God. Because of what Christ has already done. The servant who is the branch, who is the rock, what do we do? We sit in the shade, which symbolizes in the Old Testament the grace of God. We bask in belonging to God in His grace. And we invite our neighbor to come sit with us in the grace of God. And thereby the temple is being built until He comes. In the courtroom... Where Satan accuses you, the Lord God Almighty is defense attorney and judge. And he censures the arguments of the prosecution, dismisses the case, and declares you innocent by virtue of your election and cleansing through Jesus Christ alone. North Roanoke Baptist Church, whatever Satan tries to say of you and your past or even of your present, if you have believed in Christ, if you have trust on Christ the solid rock and you've received God's grace through faith alone, you must not let Satan's accusations stick any longer because we've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And we are also, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.21, being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Which brings us to the second thing we must do if we're going to build this temple. We must be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Zechariah gets so comfortable hearing the message of the grace of God that he has to be roused awake, which is interesting because he's having a night vision. Right? But he... But he's like, ah, oh, the grace of God, I'm sitting under a shade tree and I'm inviting other people in, everything's great. But the question is, how are you going to go about this work and you can't go about this work if you're not given divine enablement through the Holy Spirit? So the angel rouses Zechariah for the rest of the message in chapter 4. And here's what we find in chapter 4 to summarize. We find a candelabra. Much like the candelabras that you would have found in the tabernacle or the temple, there are seven lights. But this one has a few things that are different. First, there's a bowl at the top of the candelabra that, into which oil flows. And then out of the oil bowl, there are seven pipes that feed each of the seven lamps. Seven is the number of perfection. And there is a perpetual flow of perfect oil going to the lamps that give the light of God's glory to the world. That's God's people on fire, illumined by God through His Spirit. And the oil of God's Spirit comes down through the bowl, perfectly throwing, flowing through the pipes then radiating and emanating out as light 
to the world. How is this bowl perpetually filled with oil? In verse 14 of chapter 4, we see that it is through the literally the sons of oil. There's a tree on the right and the left of this bowl that have branches. What do those trees and branches symbolize? They symbolize the offices of priest and king. And what Zechariah is showing us, and I could do better job of showing you if we had more time, what he's showing us is that Jesus is both. He's both high priest and king, and both of his offices, because he's anointed and appointed by Yahweh to be our high priest, our representative, and to be our king and our master and our Lord. Those two things come together in Christ, and Christ does what? He pours out the oil of his spirit, because he is the great high priest, and he is the king of kings, which is exactly what Jesus tells his disciples in John 15. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you've been with me from the beginning. And because Christ is perpetually pouring out the Spirit, North Roanoke Baptist Church, we must not be those who despise the day of small things. Did you see that in verse 10? Look in your scriptures at the beginning of verse 10. For who has despised the day of small things? If God has poured out His Spirit and wrapped you in the righteousness of Christ, then who are you to say that what God could do through you is too small to even worry about? Who are we to question the power of God to work through North Roanoke Baptist Church to in effect a change that brings revival in our valley and spreads across the commonwealth and reaches to the ends of the earth? Who are we to say that God wouldn't do that here, that he wouldn't use us? Oh, we just think the work is too small. One commentator says that Zechariah is writing to all the realists out there, the ones who are perpetually pessimistic about the ability of God's people to build. They wanted to see it succeed. Oh, sure, you'll greet the pastor or Jake or Rick or somebody in the hallway and say, that was a great sermon, wasn't it? But I don't think it's possible. You know what? I don't either. I'm as a realist as a realist can be. The needs are too great. There's too much hopelessness. There's too much despair. There's too many marriages that are broken. Too many that are ending. Too many people dropping out of school. Too many people hooked on drugs. Too much crime. Too much deceit. The odds, quite frankly, are impossible. But God's Word tells me that Christ has come. And that He has qualified me. That Christ wrapped me in his righteousness. And he's qualified every single last one of you who have given your faith to Christ. Who've placed your faith and your hope and your trust in Christ. And he said, stop measuring as the world measures and start measuring as God measures because he's taken your filthy rags and he's given you the righteousness of Christ. He's been appointed and anointed as God's priest and king and he is even now pouring out an endless supply of the oil of his spirit that's rolling into the bowl, that's rolling down the seven channels that row and flow into the lights that we might light up the world for the glory of Christ. When we are delivered 
from sin. When we truly get it, we are given a special relationship with the Holy Spirit who makes us bold and effective and fruitful as we build. It's called the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. A quick word about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a force. He is a he, not an it. Nowhere in the New Testament is the Holy Spirit described as an it. It's always the personal pronoun he. You can have a relationship with the Holy Spirit of God. When God saves you, He gives you the indwelling of the Spirit to commune with the Spirit. And when you sin against Him, you grieve Him and you quench the flow of His Spirit. But guess what you do? You confess your sins to Christ and you reappropriate what God has done in your life. And you know Him and you walk with Him. And He keeps on testifying to you of what? The glory of Jesus in all things. Whatever's going on in your marriage, whatever's going on at work, whatever's going on in between, seek the glory of Christ in all things. That's what the Spirit would have you to do. He is a person, and He will say to you what Christ has done in your life, and He will say to you what Christ says of you because of your faith in Him. We can build this temple. We can take this temple to the ends of the earth. And we can do it because we've been robed and dressed in the righteousness of Christ who pours out an endless supply of heavenly, supernatural power through the Holy Spirit. Bill Bright said this, Our spiritual power does not lie in money, genius, anointed plans, or dedicated work. And we're going to work hard. But it doesn't lie in any of those things. Rather, power for spiritual conquest comes from the Holy Spirit. Zechariah, in verse 6 of chapter 4, says these words. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. North Roanoke, to build the temple of the presence of our King, from this place to the ends of the earth, we must be clothed in the righteousness of Christ and we must be filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Our Father, our God, our Savior, our only hope, our righteousness, our strength, our power, our stronghold in the day of trouble, we confess to you, God, that Satan, the accuser, so often dredges up our past, dredges up our sinful tendencies, plays to our flesh and makes us want to give in and capitulate and water down the gospel and pretend that you are powerless to do a hard and saving work in our lives. But God, we confess to you even now that this, the accusations of Satan must go because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Satan, we, we say to you that you must flee our right hand because Christ sits at the right hand of the Father. And even now, our great high priest makes intercession, knowing full well about our filth, but he has taken it and he's buried it and he's burned it in his own body. 
And we are presented faultless before the throne, not of any work that we have done, but what Christ has done. So, Spirit of God, forgive us for the times that we've put more stock in the accusations of the accuser than we have in the blood that was spilt by the Lamb of God. And Holy Spirit of God, help us to not be a church that neglects you or your ministry or the very real presence that you have even in this place. As you're being poured out perfectly by the Father and the Son, that we might illumine the world. God, in this room, a room this big, there's surely someone who needed to hear that they are found righteous because of what Christ has done. There's surely someone who needed to be reminded that it's not what we can do, but it's what the Spirit can do through willing vessels. So God, as we come to our time of response, we invite those who want to who want to join with us in this temple building work to come. Say, I want to join. God, for others who, who now know that they're saved or want to be saved, they say, I want to trust the Lord and I want to be part of that baptism next week. We invite them to come. For those who've moved from out of state or across town and they're looking for a place where it's okay to say, I'm a sinner saved by grace and I want to be sent on mission in Jesus' name, we invite them to come and to say, North Roanoke's my new home. Wherever you are, whatever God is doing in your life, we ask you to come. Lord Jesus' work for the glory of your great name. Amen.